Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hi, thanks for being here. This is Your Cyber Path. We're the podcast that helps you start a career in cybersecurity, or if you're already working in cybersecurity, we're going to help you accelerate your career. You're going to get more responsibility, more compensation, and you're going to have a lot better work in your hands. I'm Kip Boyle. Here with me is Jason Dion. Hey, Jason. Hey, Kip. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. It's nice to have you back on dry land. Um, Jason has been uh, cruising like there's no tomorrow, like cruising is going to come to an end anytime soon. <laughs> well, uh, it did in 2020. So, I mean, I had to make up for lost time. No, this and, is the Navy sailor in me. I just love being on the water. I, okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, you're back on dry land for, I guess, a short refit and you're yep. on your way again really soon. So I'm glad I got a chance to pin you down. Um, so what we're, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to finish a series of episodes that we started a long time ago on, sec on uh, security architecture and design principles. Now, this, is all, this all comes from a paper that was originally published back in 1975. And if you go back to the first episode in the series, you'll hear me talk, me and Jason talk about uh, you know, where this paper came from, why it's so important. But today we want to talk about the 10th and final uh, principle and why is this important? Okay, so this is my last chance to tell you. It's important because so much of the work that we do changes all the time. New technologies, new products, new attacks. Uh, but these principles are something that doesn't change very often. Some of them come into fashion, some of them go out of fashion, but most of them are still relevant today, uh, even though they were written a long, long time ago. Now, the one we're going to talk about today, the 10th and final one, is called separation of privilege. I'm sure that this is going to be, unlike the last one we did, least common mechanism, which was weird and difficult to understand, I think separation of privilege is going to be way easier for us to understand. And, um, and the way that it's defined in the paper is the protection mechanism should grant access based on more than one piece of information. So... Jason, <laughs> I, yeah. I, my bet is this is like completely relevant in all of the modern certification body of knowledge. Is that right? Oh, yeah. We, we use separation of privileges all the time. Uh, and you may hear this called dual authorization, dual control, or another form of separation of privilege is actually when you are the one person authenticating, but you're using two different forms to do it, mm. i.e. you're logging with a username and password and that one-time text message code that goes to your cell phone. Right. Um, so when I think about separation of privileges, I really think about the fact that we're going to take this protection mechanism and it's going to grant access based on more than one piece of information. Uh, that can be a username and a password and something like a uh, rotating one-time use code or a text message or a link in your email. Or in, in the older systems, we actually do this by having dual control and having two separate people doing something. Mm. Um, so I'm sure we can all think of great examples of this that we use on a daily basis. Uh, I'm going to give you one from, from a large uh, organization. If you work in a large company, right, and mm -hmm. you're about to go buy a new office building and it's a $10 million office building. Well, if Kip is the CEO, he can't just write a check on his own for $10 million and sign it and somebody will cash it. Instead, the CEO has to write the check and the CFO has to countersign it. And so now we have two pieces of information, Kip's signature and the CFO's signature, before that check becomes valid and somebody will cash that check and give them their new office building. 
So that's one way that we see this, at least in the financial world. Um, another good example of this, I always think about in, in one of my courses, we talk about dual control. Mm. Um, I use this example. And, and I talk about the fact that like my wife has this macaroni and cheese recipe that's like the <laughs> best family macaroni and cheese recipe, right? Uh, and she's she's got it from her, her mom and her mom gave it to her from her grandma and it's been passed down over the years, right? So if we have this super secret macaroni and cheese recipe and I don't want anybody to get it, I can lock it up in my safe, right? But if I do that, a single combination or a single key would open it and somebody could steal it. But because this is a super secret macaroni and cheese recipe, we're actually going to take the combination that opens that lock and we're going to split it up. And so maybe it uses two padlocks and each one is a four-digit combination. Mm. My wife knows one and I know one. So if she knows it and opens it, she still can't get the recipe without me being there. And I can't open it without her being there. Mm -hmm. And so we both have to be there providing our piece of the combination to be able to open that lockbox. Now, I know that sounds like a kind of silly example, and we don't actually lock up her recipe that way. <laughs> but in the computing world, we actually do that a lot. We'll take a cryptographic key, we'll split it in half and give half of it to one user and half of it to another user so that both have to come together before we can unlock or decrypt some kind of a really important thing. For example, if you're Coca-Cola, you want to make sure nobody knows what your secret recipe is. If you're right. Colonel Sanders, nobody should know your 13 herbs and spices, right? All of that is corporate trade secrets that need to be protected, and they are under highly guarded lock and key using these types of dual authentication or dual authorization systems. So that's kind of my my look at this when we talk about separation of privilege here. Yeah, I think I think that all makes sense. I think it's helpful. Um, <clears throat> the uh, The one that I'm thinking of is actually from Hollywood because, you know, Hollywood does does a wonderful job of you know making it completely plain to everybody how we do our work, don't they? I mean, it's just yeah. it's just it's all oh, yeah. wonderful. I mean, every time I've watched NCIS and we have the two <laughs> hackers on the keyboard at the same time, because two people typing on a keyboard is obviously faster than one person typing on a keyboard. Right. That's no, right. uh, but you're right. There are some examples in Hollywood. Uh, you're probably thinking of the Hunt for Red October and the nuclear launch sequence, right? Yeah, but it, yes, I am thinking of the nuclear launch sequence. But unfortunately for you. Being a Navy uh, veteran, I wasn't thinking about that movie. I was thinking about the Air Force movie, uh, War Games. Oh, okay. Yeah. With Matthew Broderick back in 1983 is when that thing came out. And the reason why I think of it is because in the beginning of the movie, they have this little vignette that opens up the movie where missileers are in the hardened, uh, you know, land-based ICBM launch silo. And they have this really, you know, interesting situation where they get the launch codes and the, and the launch officer, one of one of them's ready to go. He's gung ho and the other one hesitates. And so the gung ho launch officer uh, pulls his uh, sidearm, aims it at the other launch officer and says, turn your key, sir. And, you know, and then and then you see, you know, after that happens, they pull out the chairs and that sort of becomes the beginning of the movie and the justification for Whopper. Yep. Right. So, and I, and I was actually thinking. I said the wrong movie. It wasn't Crimson. Uh, it wasn't uh, Hunt for October. I was thinking of. It was actually Crimson Tide with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. Right. And they're on a submarine. They're on a nuclear submarine. And and Gene Hackman, who's the captain, gets a message. And it's only half of the message. that says, "Go launch the missiles." And the XO, who's Denzel Washington, goes, "No, we can't do that, sir. The message wasn't complete. Mm -hmm. And under the military standards, if the message is incomplete." It could have been terminated. It could have been exercised. You don't know. You don't act on that message. You've got to have the whole thing. So they're waiting for it. And because they're a submarine under the water and they're being tracked by a Russian sub, they can't come up to Periscope depth to get the new rewrite of the message. And the captain's like, no, we're going to do it. And he tries to you know, fire the XO and everything else. But essentially they have, if you want to launch a missile, they each had a safe in their room. Right. And they go in, they break open the thing and get their half of the code that is the authorization key to do it. Or in the case you were talking about, you have two keys and they have to be turned at the same time to launch the missile. 
all of those are forms of dual authentication or separation of privilege so that one person can't start a nuclear war with Russia and instead you have to have two people do it. <laughs> yeah, we need two people to agree we need to start a nuclear war. And uh, thank God that hasn't happened yet. Um, so, you know what? Separation of privilege, it actually is very easy for us to describe because why it's such a useful design principle that it's actually, you can see it all over the place, both in the military environment as well as in the private environment. I really love the example of the, the two signature checks, uh, you know, the countersigning of the checks, perfect for the private sector. Um, was there anything else you wanted to mention in this episode, Jason? Yeah, I would say the other area that I've seen this used, uh, when I was working in the military, anytime we were doing a new installation of a piece of gear, we bring in a contractor who does a lot of the installations for us because our crew doesn't have enough uh, either experience, time, money, or talent to do it. And whatever the reason is, we bring in some outside contractors. So when an outside contractor comes in and takes out your old servers and puts in a new server and they install the software, they do the updates and they do the configurations, one of the things is they actually have a signature and they go down the checklist and they sign off on it. Mm. While they're doing that, we have a Navy person standing next to them, verifying they did the work and signing off next to them. And then once both those columns are signed on this you know, 300 page document with all the steps they had to do, they bring it to the communications officer who reviews it and verifies that everything's been signed and countersigned. And then they will sign it and accept the agreement. And they call that a SOVOT, a System Operations Verification and Testing. Hmm. And once you sign off, now the Navy owns that system and it's no longer the contractor's responsibility. <clears throat> and at that point, if something breaks, it's now under the Navy's problem and not the contractor's to fix. But until we both sign off on that and we've agreed that they've done all the work and we concur they do all the work and we accept it, it no longer is our problem yet. It's still their problem because it's still under the contractor's control. And so that's another area of this dual control or dual authorization where it can be used as a way to, to move it from a production or from a testing environment into a production environment or from a production environment into, into retirement or something like that. Have you ever had to sign off on one of those? Oh, all the time. Yeah, hundreds of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, so when I was uh, in the Navy back in the day, uh, I was on a, a, a large ship called the USS Wasp LHD-1. And uh, when I was there, we went through a 11-month overhaul period. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough, <laughs> lucky enough, haha, <laughs> yeah, uh, to be the uh, information systems officer on that ship. I was responsible for about 120 people. Uh, we had a network that could support 3,000 users. And while I was on that, we actually went into the shipyard and ripped off every single piece of Cat 3 and Cat 5 wiring on the ship, mm -hmm. every single server, every single computer, every single router and switch. And we did what's called the gig E upgrade, going from 100 megabits per second up to 1,000 uh, 1, megabits and uh, 1 gig and 10 gig per second using fiber lines all the way to the desktop for every single computer. And it was a massive project. And my 120 people would never be able to do it on their own. So we brought in a team of a couple of hundred people from outside that came in and ran all the cables and ran all the wirings. And that was just a massive, uh, it was a 30, $40 million project that I oversaw as wow. we did this whole installation. Um, and, and that was just one of the, the big installs we did, but every piece that then had to be so voted, like the network, like the routers, like the servers, and the domain controllers, and then all the other systems that I was responsible for, including satellite connectivity and, and wireless connectivity and things like that. So it, it, it's a lot of those that you do. Um, and that is part of that dual control and dual authorization to make sure that when I sign it, I'm now responsible for it moving forward uh, and it's no longer the contract company's job. And so a lot of the contractors will try to push it through and get you to sign things before they're ready because they don't want to be responsible anymore. Now it's your problem, right? So you got to be very careful yeah. if you're in a position of leadership and not just sign things that are put in front of you because when you're signing, you're usually authorizing something, either money, time, resources, uh, or responsibility. Well, so if Radar O'Reilly shows up and says, sign here, sir, make sure you read it. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 100%. Uh, but yeah, so that's the idea of this whole idea of separation of privileges. Uh, like I said, this can be called dual control, dual authorization, dual signature. Uh, you'll see things like key escrow where they take a key and they split it in half. And so each half of that key becomes part of the total solution. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things I personally do. Uh, we've talked before about using password managers, right, Kip? Uh, when you set up your password manager, you set up your long, strong password yep. and two-factor authentication, right? But if you forget that password or that two-factor authentication, what does your password manager have for you? How do you get in? Uh, you have like this emergency secret key. Yeah, and it's like this big, long series of hexadecimal mm -hmm. numbers, and it's usually like 20, 30, 40 digits long. Yep. Well, one of the things I do is I actually take that and I print it off, and then I don't store that anywhere on my computer because I don't want it in a digital format, and I take it on a piece of paper and I literally cut it in half. And I have half stored in one place and half stored in another place. And so if I need to go ahead and unlock it, I can do that. And the reason I do that is because all my passwords are in that password manager. And if I just had that sitting on my desk and somebody broke into my house right. and they steal that emergency key, they now have access to my bank accounts, my credit cards, my stock brokerage, and all the other things. And I don't want that. So I've implemented this idea of dual authorization or dual control by splitting that one piece of information into two and then locking them up in different places. You're fun at parties, aren't you? Oh, I'm so much fun. Let me tell you. <laughs> 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 Sometimes okay. I'm a little paranoid. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been in security for long for, for 25 years at this point, man. Yeah. I, I, I'm a little paranoid, but only because I know what's out there. <laughs> well, that's just it. It's not paranoid if they really are out to get you. <laughs> yep. And, and really, it just comes down to how much protection do you want for that thing, right? right. Um, and that may be going a little too far. But again, in my case, I can do that. Maybe I put half of it at my kid's house and half of it in my bedroom, right? And nobody would know where it is or which kid it's at or that kind of thing. So it gives you ability to have these things. Or you might split it and put one in a Dropbox account and one in a Google Drive account. Mm -hmm. So now somebody has to break into two accounts to put the information back together. Right. That's the idea of what we're talking about here. Yep. I think it's perfectly well explained. I'm not going to add another thing. All right. At the risk of muddying it, muddying the waters. Well, that being said, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. I hope you guys have all enjoyed this SDP uh, discussion as we've gone through over the last 20 weeks together or 20 episodes together. Uh, we've done one episode of SDP and then something else and then one episode of SDP and then something else. And this was number 10. So this was the final SDP episode that we have. Um, so you won't hear us talk about SDP again on this podcast, at least for not for a while. Um, <laughs> And that was a really long series. So I really appreciate uh, you all sticking with us. If you missed any of the other parts of that series, you can go back and listen to them over at yourcyberpath.com. We have all those episodes uh, that you can go back and learn all 10 of those service design principles uh, and those secure design principles to make sure you understand how these things operate inside of your daily life and inside of your businesses as you move forward. Uh, that being said, I want to thank you again for listening to the Your Cyber Path podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast application, whether that's Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you like to listen to us on. Uh, we really appreciate those reviews. It does help us get found in search and helps more people find this podcast. And the other thing I want to say is if you want to keep in touch with me or Kip, you can always do that over at yourcyberpath.com or over at accolade.com, A-K-Y-L-A-D-E.com, which is a certification company that we work uh, work with and we co-founded. Uh, and we are doing all the new certifications out there for the NIST Cybersecurity Framework and Risk Management and other things like that. And I think you'll find it very valuable. So if you want to keep in touch with us, you can find us over there at A-K-Y-L-A-D-E.com. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Your Cyber Path. Thanks for being here, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Cyber Path. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button now.
If you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com, where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks, and discover some fantastic bonus content.